0: Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. I uh, had a plan for the show, but as often happens, I hear something on the radio driving in that makes me pivot my plan. Uh, But we're going to start off with talking about some second thoughts on lab-grown meat. And then I I had a little bit of time before the program, so I did a little bit of a dive into mycelium-based foods that are very high in protein and actually can imitate meat quite well. So we're going to have a little gastronomic discussion, then uh, some deep dives, Thanks to the people who emailed me this week, I had two very good questions, and we're going to do uh, some deep dives on submitted topics of general interest. So I think that's got it covered. So let's start uh, with misgivings about lab-grown meat. I had a, a very enthusiastic discussion about this maybe six months ago, I'm not really quite sure how long it was, and... It really sounded like we were going to be able to seriously reduce global warming. Uh, Right now, meat and dairy production account for 12% of humanity's greenhouse gas emissions. And if we could switch over to lab-grown meat, that would make a very, very big and substantial dent in our issue. And there's been... You know, it's it's sort of sexy. Lab grown meat can be interesting. I think everybody wants to try it. Uh, certainly, there's been a lot of hype about it recently in Australia. A company that was this year, an Australian startup, created a mammoth meatball by mixing DNA recovered from frozen mammoth remains with uh, DNA from modern day elephants. And then there's an Israeli firm called Wandafish. Love the name. Who's working on cultivated bluefin tuna? It all sounds so good, and most of us were curious about it. It uh, sales of alternative meats peaked in 2021, however, and uh, they've dropped. And as a result of their dropping, the financial valuation of the companies like Beyond Meat has dropped substantially because you know the the company's economic value, if you will, in the stock market is. actual value, maybe less than that, and at least another 50% expectations that this thing is going to take off. Well, the devil's in the details. And so let's do a little primer again about how this stuff works. There are two ways to make cultivated meat. You either start with cells and you put them in a bioreactor, a big stainless steel tank, and fill put nutrient-rich liquid in that. And after about a month, you've got, Uh, kind of a meat porridge that you can turn into chicken nuggets or whatever, what has you. The other way, and this is, of course, if you want to eat a steak or a pork chop or something that's got an actual physical structure that changes the way you experience the food, you know, the difference between a steak and a hamburger is not just texture, but there's also a difference in the flavor because of the way it hits your taste buds. Anyway, they there's a desire to make more fibrous structured meat substitutes so you have to grow them on a scaffold. But this is where we get into some of the problems. To do this, you need to add proteins called growth factors to the nutrient solution. You can, at those growth factors themselves take the embryonic cells which typically we're using embryonic cells from chicken or beef uh to derive what you're trying to grow in the vat because they're pluripotent and they grow more readily. but And they keep growing, and that's another key. You can take muscle cells from animal meat, but after about a dozen separation, uh, uh, they stop growing. And so that is very time-limited. So there's a lot of interesting chemicals being added in here that I really hadn't thought about. So this is one of my misgivings. The currently, the cost is higher. It's about double the cost for farm-grade meat in terms of expenses. But the idea was that that would come down. Here's the problem. Energy. Energy cost for those bioreactors is actually quite substantial. And again, this is meat, so you're going to have to keep it hot to get it to divide because meat wants to divide at room temperature, not at room temperature, but at body temperature. A study came out earlier this year, and this is part of what pivoted me, comes from my old alma mater, UC Davis, that found in many circumstances, cultivated meat could actually be more polluting than the conventional stuff, which is hard to believe. But it depends upon the type of growth solution that's used and how much energy is used and also how much shipping around of product, because big, de- you know, big food dealers like Arthur Daniels Midland, you know, the, the food Nazis have, uh, you know, sort of trying to corner the, corner the market on the growth factors, which then they can sell and to other people. But that also means lots of trucks moving them around. Anyway, this is starting to look like something I'm not all that interested in anymore, sorry sorry to say. Uh, but the conversation on Talk of the Bay with the representative from the Fungus Federation got me thinking very seriously about mycelia because uh, there is a, uh, a food uh, called quorum which is made from mushroom mycelia. More about that one in a minute. But mycelia are having a moment when it comes to... Uh, alternative meat alternatives because they grow quickly and the mycelia as it was described is a mesh network that grows through the soil anyone who's done any gardening has probably seen these little white fibers Uh, those are pipes basically carrying information carrying genetics carrying water carrying nutrients throughout this vast network the little things that grow up out, out of the ground those are the fruiting bodies but the real mushroom is in the soil and several uh, startups have gotten rolling that make whole meat alternatives that have the structure because it turns out you can grow mycelia that has the microstructure of meat the um, there's a company called prime roots that uses koji this is a Japanese fungus that's traditionally used to make sake and soy sauce, right? Fermented foods, both of those. So they add sugar and nutrients. It tastes neutral, but the structure of the mycelia lines up in a structure that's very much like animal muscle. So they've already got the muscle fiber texture, and then they can process it from there to add flavorings. Uh, Someone else is using mycelia to make a seafood alternative. One Comp Prime Roots has basically branched out. They have a bacon, they have sausage, charcuterie, several different versions of turkey and ham. They're really trying to get us get <laughs> it's it's sort of like training wheels on your bicycle, right? We're going to make it look and taste like the stuff you're used to. But then it's only a matter of time because we take off from there. Other people are making a foaming non-dairy milk. Look for that in um a at your favorite cafe near you sometime soon, and uh, I'll I could wax more, but I want to jump down and talk to you about flavor modulators. This company uh, is called uh Mycotechnology, and uh, there's they have actually been pulling out the chemicals that are made by the mycelia and checking their characteristics. There's all sorts of enzymes and compounds in there. By the way, the cancer-fighting uh, uh, and immune-stimulating mushroom compound is called beta-glycan, and it's found in the cell wall of most mushrooms at very high levels in shiitake, which is readily available at a store near you. And so during the winter, when you're trying to fight off infections, just be aware that mushrooms uh, are very helpful in helping you with that by stimulating your T-cells to fight off viruses and, as it happens, cancers. But this jumped off the page at me because the uh, same company I'm referring to found a flavor modulator that decreases the perception of bitter taste. It temporarily sits on the bitter taste receptor sites on the tongue, and so bitter flavor can't bind to them. But I will tell you something. There is a group of people whose bitter taste buds are supercharged and they taste bitter very well. These are the I hate broccoli, I hate all the I hate I hate salads, I hate most vegetables except maybe carrots. These are the people that you see push away their plate of all of those healthy bioflavonoids. And if we could Uh, If we can exploit something like this flavor enhancer and just have people like swish it through their mouth before they eat vegetables, they may be able to enjoy the flavor. And there's so many healthy things in those vegetables that they aren't getting that people who have the syndrome, who are called super tasters, are, in fact, much more likely in their lifespan to develop cancer. Because a lot of those bioflavonoids in the vegetables, my friends, are cancer Cancer fighters. They indirectly change the way the body uh, behaves, particularly the liver physiologically, and makes it able to break down uh, carcinogens that are in our environment. Now, there is a test for super tasters, and I have this in my office when someone, when I do a diet history and they tell me that they hate uh, vegetables, or I see that they just aren't eating any. I ask them some questions, and if they're, and, and I pull out these little strips, they look like a pH strip, and have them put it in their mouth. And I, then I have a an Altoids ready because if they're a super taster, this will taste incredibly bitter. I'm not a super taster. I put that thing in my mouth, and it tastes mildly bitter. But I give them a glass of water. I give them, an, I I say, okay. If it's really bitter, rinse, spit, and put the saltoid in your mouth, and then or other strong peppermint, uh, and you will kill the taste and be able to you know tolerate the fact that I've just tested you. But now, if this ever ever actually makes it to drug, this could be great. Let's take a moment and do just a little walk through some of the companies I mentioned: Bacon, Quorum's been. Is um, been around for a long time. That's Q U O R N, but there are a whole lot of other companies. Meaty is an up and comer. They've been around. They're in Boulder, and they've been around since 2015. And they make again that whole cut meat that looks like something might have gotten sliced at the deli. Uh, they have s- vegan steaks, plant uh, chicken breasts, and other things, and it's 95 percent. Mycelium with just basic stuff like acacia gum, some oat fiber, some chickpea, some spices, but essentially all natural, all healthy meets the good the Don uh, Doctor Don seal of approval. And we already talked about Prime Roots, and uh, we've already talked about corn. Uh, there's a company called Better Meat, and there's. Uh, Another company that makes a pasta, I'm not seeing their name on this particular article, but they make an actual flour-based mycelium, and then they turn it into pasta, and it has no carbohydrates in it. And if you eat a serving of this pasta, it's got as much protein as a chicken breast. So I'm thinking that mushrooms may not just be fun at the fungus fair in a couple of weeks but also might just bring us uh, a way to really re-engineer the food supply and provide protein to people you know we need protein protein is extremely beneficial and important and it is critical for maintaining and building muscle as you age so i'm going to wrap this one up with an article that came from the Journal of Nutrition. It was published recently this year. The University of Exeter was looking at two commercially available algae species because, yes, algae makes protein too. And they tested uh, spirulina and chlorella products uh, against a, and probably against quorum, a non-animal-derived dietary uh, fungal derived mycoprotein, and they uh, looked at meat, of course, so they had all three categories. So the study had a really fun uh, setup. They basically had these 36 healthy young adults, presumably without knee injuries, and they had them do one leg resistance exercises. So I'm assuming they were either hopping or extending their leg. And just after doing that, they drank a protein drink, 25 grams of protein from either mycoprotein, uh, animal meat, spirulina or chlorella. And they looked at blood and skeletal muscle samples. These people were paid. They actually had a muscle biopsy uh, both before uh, the test baseline, and then four hours post-feeding. And the blood amino acid contrates and the RNA for, mu- for muscle uh, fiber protein uh, was compared in both groups. And so they found that, of course, the protein ingestion across the board increased amino acid contra- concentrations, but it worked better. So spirulina was best of all, faster than mycoprotein, faster than chlorella, and faster than meat. So uh, this shows that spirulina and chlorella, which we know to have protein, actually, at least in the case of spirulina, might actually be better for bodybuilders than, quote-unquote, muscle milk with all of its attendant uh, issues with respect to the environment. So I'm feeling like we may uh, be talking more about this topic in the future. Well now as promised I'm going to do a little uh, emails and uh, I want to thank both people who emailed this week we have we'll start off with one from Karen in Carmel and Karen writes enlarged prostate cause and treatment options she says my partner 80 years old who is healthy and fit has an enlarged prostate with the need for frequent urination, possible remedies. So let's start out with a little bit of physiology. So the prostate is a gland, it's located in males under the bladder. Women do not have prostates, at least uh, X, X women do not have prostates. And their problems with urination as they age are completely different. The prostate is like a donut. Uh, and the urethra is going through a hole in the center of the the donut. This creates irritation and pressure as the urethra gets compressed. Blockage of the ability to empty the bladder is also a problem. So before you do anything, you should have a medical workup. There is a thing called the AUA symptom index. You can look that up online, and this is a way of objectively assessing the severity of it. And then typically we then move to a physical exam, which involves a rectal exam to feel the size of the prostate. And I'm always amazed at how consistent the urologists are. Of course, they've felt a lot of prostates in their time, but they're really good at guessing how many grams the prostate is when someone goes and does an ultrasound and compares that. So physical examination and urinalysis. And so that's right out of the out of the box, you want to make sure the person doesn't have a low grade infection of the prostate. It's best to do the urinalysis after the prostate exam because a low grade infection of the prostate will definitely smolder and just make the person have more frequency waking up in the middle of the night. A lot of times we try drugs at this point, and the standard drug therapies are alpha blockers. And uh, a class of drugs called five alpha reductase inhibitors. The, this later class, the alpha reductase inhibitors, work to prevent testosterone from being turned into dihydrotestosterone. Ironically enough, dihydrotestosterone makes the prostate big and it turns you bald. So that's why uh, the drugs, the same drugs that are used, or at least one of the same drugs, that are used for this problem uh, are also used as a baldness cure, and, and so that's that's um, sort of interesting. Proscar and I'm um, Propecia are the two drugs there, and they can, in fact, help with hair loss uh, and prevent further loss. Alpha alpha blockers are basically old style blood pressure drugs that have been superseded by kinder, gentler, safer drugs, but given at a very low dose, they tend to unlock the irritation of the of the urethra and allow for better flow, but more importantly, allow for less urgency, which is where they really have their uh, benefit. Now, both of these can be, you can find plant sources for these. One of the fa- my favorites is combinations of saw palmetto and nettle. Uh, This seems to work for the irritation. I think the nettle has a a numbing effect, and the saw palmetto is a natural 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. So over time, the combination of the two can get rid of the irritation and prevent the prostate from enlarging further. If a person presents, and they're fairly advanced, particularly if they've got backup of their urine into their ureters, that's going to injure the kidneys, uh, if they're not emptying their bladder well that's when you want to think about treatment and that's where that American Urological Association symptom score if you're less than 7 you probably want to sit try- tight and try the drugs or the herbs if you're greater than 8 uh, you're you just the odds of you improving with medical therapy are low enough that you might want to just move to the next step so now we're going to talk about all of the next things that are available, and there are a lot of them. Uh, some of them <laughs> have uh, already proved to be uh, ineffective, but I think the way to think about this is that uh, prostates, this is a problem <laughs> with a very big audience. So let's start with what came out in the 70s, transurethral resection of the prostate, it's a surgical approach. Uh, this removes... Part of the inside of the prostate trick with this is you're going in through the urethra and then you're trying to scoop out some of the prostate, make more space for the urethra and clear up, uh, let the urethra heal. Uh, Typically, we leave a catheter in there for a while so that it acts as a stent. And as the urethra heals around the catheter, it re-epithelializes, just like when you cut yourself. Uh, There are also prostatectomies, so very large prostates. You can remove the prostate. Uh, that is risky. You can sometimes cut the nerves. It, you need to have a very good doctor, so with lots of experience. So usually we use some of these other things, transurethral incision of the prostate. So you can imagine go in there and we just make a cut uh, by transurethral vaporization. This is where you use a radio frequency device to basically boil off some of the prostate. You can also use laser. This is called photoselective vaporization of the prostate. Uh, there's also something called the urethral lift or urolift. This is very popular at the moment. And uh, there's some, there is less likelihood of messing with erections and ejaculatory function than any of the other surgeries because you're not really messing with the urethra. You're just basically repositioning it like a kinked hose and you're unkinking it. There's also microwave therapy. Uh, This is cooking the prostate and shrinking it a bit. And there's water vapor thermal therapy. Uh, This is, again, using hot water and running it through there. And because it isn't involved with cutting, you have less likelihood of uh, of the undesirable side effects. There used to be transurethral needle ablation. That actually uh had a brief moment as the latest and the best and there's now uh various laser treat various additional laser treatments the nuances of how this works I cannot explain and here's the latest and the greatest uh this is an outpatient procedure that uh is getting a lot of hype big announcement trumpets and all of that uh this is a minimally invasive uh procedure Called uh, BPH catheter system. So, base the way it works is they thread an inflatable catheter towards the prostate, and then the catheter isn't is opened up, and it cracks the prostate open. The prostate is basically two lobes. Uh, like think about the way that an orange is where you've got all of these sections that you could peel apart. Well, it peels apart the two, the right and the left half, and it creates a V-shaped channel that's supposed to reduce pressure on the urethra. They've got four-year, they, they also include a, a Paxitaxel, which is a cancer therapy, chemotherapy drug that Limits the post the inflammatory response because you just tore the prostate, so there's a lot of inflammation. So they throw, you know, you have a complication, throw a drug at it. Uh, This is maybe going to have traction. It's new. I would steer away from it, uh, basically because there have been too many prostate things that had their moment and then died back. Because four or five years later, the people ended up getting surgery anyway. And of course, for an 80-year-old, uh, presumably one with healthy fi- uh, physical functioning, uh, maybe even healthy sexual functioning, uh, I would certainly stay away from any of the surgical things and maybe get an ultrasound and just check the size of the prostate along with the other bits of workup before seeking a surgical treatment. So we just have a caller coming in. I'm uh, hoping that I'm picking you up. (laughs) Hello, and give me your name and where you're calling from.
1: Hello, dear Dr. Aline Smith. always find your program fascinating. Oh, hello, Aline. And you had mentioned to get lion's mane mushrooms, and I forgot to ask. Of course, I steam them as well as eating them raw there. Very tasty. I'd never heard of them before.
0: Oh, they are and indeed. And you
1: had advised it as a, an aid for remembering dreams. That's right. But I it, guess I have to take it every every day. I'm I'm. I'm it's not, uh, not stirring not my working.
0: dreams. Well, let's start with. Um, let's start with the fact that I would recommend if you're trying to use it not because it's delicious, but to get a therapeutic effect, you probably want to go to a tincture. Uh, Just any, a quick story. When I was in mm, college, there used to be these machines that would make orange juice. And I had a a boyfriend at the time who loved orange juice. He came from England. And so the idea that you could just buy fresh-squeezed orange juice at the store was fascinating to him and having grown up on concentrate. And the machines were kind of fun to watch. You know, you would uh, it would, like, pop the orange thing down and squeeze it, and it was sort of a little, you know, orange juice barista. And the thing that struck me, because I was drinking this stuff every week, was how different each crop of oranges, whatever they happened to be using, how very, very different they tasted. You know, if you grow up on Minute Maid, they blended all these different oranges together, and it very, very consistent taste. But fresh squeezed juice was inconsistent and varied from month to month so much. And that's true of plants, right? Plants are—they depend on, or I guess we we call mushrooms where they're not a, quite an animal or a plant, whatever they are. Uh, they depend on the soil. They depend on the minerals in the soil. What's growing above them all sorts of things that can be factors. Most commercial eating mushrooms are grown a little bit differently than the ones that are grown for tinctures. And so uh, that may, and with tinctures, you're basically extracting the active compounds. So you get a much bigger dose. If you, so I think I would go with mushroom tinctures and, uh there's a company there's lots of good companies okay there's a local company that I think is very good uh but I don't remember their name so if you know their name call and tell me but well, I i I'll have to ask No question. I'm talking to the rest of the audience somebody can call in and fill me in on what I don't know I'd appreciate it but anyway uh getting back to the tinctures that might be the way to do it the other thing mm. is we have to make sure that you're getting good quality sleep and Absolutely. Um, you know, you're you're an older woman because uh, I've met you. Not, you're right. Not that much. Not that you know that old. But you're old enough to have sleep issues. You're old enough to maybe have sleep apnea. Have you been checked for that?
1: No, I don't have any of those uh, issues. Have you been checked? Yes.
0: All right. So I just wanted to make sure.
1: Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. I sleep deeply and well.
0: So the other thing about remembering your dreams, and this is just, is uh, the first thing you want to do is write your dreams down. Absolutely. Every every morning, even if all it is is a little image. It sets Absolutely. up a post to it sets up a yeah. sort of suggestion to your subconscious that you're paying attention to them. And so, you know, talk, you know, actually say the dream, you know, oh, I was in a building or oh, mm-hmm. I saw Jack and say it out loud because that affects a different part of your brain. And eventually, you should be able, um, if your sleep is, in fact, normal, to remember dreams. Have you remembered in other parts of your life, at other times, were you able to remember
1: dreams? All the time, in my 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm.
0: So, I, it could be a sweet sleep quality issue. And uh, one mm-hmm. of the things that you might want to do is get a sleep tracker. And see when you're doing wh- what your REM looks like when you're having right, your rapid right. eye movement. And uh, a lot of what I find personally, because I use a sleep tracker, is that the dreams I remember are the ones I have just before waking up. And so, and when I go to bed early, I have a lot more dreams. So that's, and of course, no alcohol or antihistamines because right. definitely sleeping pills and. Some sleeping pills actually will give you more vivid dreams, but I don't recommend you know nightly sleeping pills just so you can have dreams. No,
1: no, no. I wouldn't want to do that. Not a good thing. One quick question, and I'll hang up. Is yeah. is there such a thing as a type of meat that can lower risk of dementia? A type ah. of meat, not to my knowledge.
0: <laughs> uh, did you did you think you heard me say that? I uh, no.
1: No, never. I okay. I was reading something.
0: I. Well, I do not think so. I do no. not think so. Okay. Most meat gets broken down to pretty much the same compounds because it's, you know, t- the 20 essential amino acids. And most of that breakdown occurs in your stomach.
1: Absolutely. It doesn't go to the brain. No, not really.
0: And mm. I don't mm. think uh, as we age, the most important things for our brain are good nutrition, exercise, um, and sleep. Yes, yes. Sleep. And exercising with weights, actually, has been shown to be very beneficial.
1: Yeah. I just came home from errands and doing this and that and the other, and I walked and walked and walked in the rain with my umbrella, of course, and at least 10 blocks I walk every day.
0: Good. Good. All right. Well, 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 Aline, thank you for the call, and have a happy, happy new year. Happy
1: new year to you.
0: Bye-bye. Okay. Let's move to uh, Sarah in Sunnyvale. Sarah writes, uh, Hi, Dr. Don, love your show. I had COVID in late October for the first time. I recovered from that, and this week started having some symptoms and took a home test and was positive. It seems unusual to get COVID again just two months after having it. So far, it's a milder case at least. My main question, though, is whether there are things I should be doing from a functional medicine standpoint to aid in recovery and reduce the risk of long-term effects. About me, 43-year-old, not immunocompromised, I saw some resources on your website, and I'll go look there, too, since I know you might not have another podcast until after the holidays. Yes, I am uh, glutton for getting on the air, so yes, I am live tonight, uh, even though we're doing the holidays. So let's start with what you can do to avoid long COVID. Uh, we'll start off with a few things that are on, the, uh, are on the recommendations for the website because they also help prevent you from getting COVID. And we talked earlier, in fact, quite a lot of the show has been related to mushrooms. And uh, mushrooms can be extremely help, uh, helpful. And there is uh, good evidence that certain other compounds uh, can help with resistance, but also help with recovery. So we're going to focus on that. I want to start with healthy diet, because a healthy diet means that you have a healthy microbiome. And you need that healthy microbiome to be able to keep your inflammation down, One of the chief things that COVID does is it jumps on your ACE2 uh, receptor, right? But that receptor also has activity as an enzyme. And one of the things it does is it acts as an anti-inflammatory compound. So when you lose that anti-inflammatory compound, you don't want your bad microbiome to continually be dropping pro-inflammatory compounds into your system because that's going to just keep you revved up. And we know that a lot of the lifestyle risks for uh, getting bad COVID relate to the microbiome and uh, relate to the inflammatory level of the individual. So if you have an inflammatory disease like diabetes, well then, you're more likely to get sicker. If you have a pro-inflammatory condition like obesity, where your body fat is actually making pro-inflammatory chemicals, well, you're more likely to get a bad inflammation that you can't turn off. So not getting a bad inflammation is key. Uh, Curcumin and green tea extract, and i do like m- various mushroom compounds for boosting the immune system. Uh, there's also a compound called balacaine, which is this is more for not getting COVID in the first place, but it's found in a herb called Chinese skullcap. And skullcap is one of the unsung heroes of avoiding COVID. So you might want to go and get some skullcap because it seems like you are, and it could just be that you got a big dose and not that you're particularly vulnerable. Uh, we, The dose, the amount of virus that you're exposed to varies quite a lot, we know. Particularly if you come across someone who's unvaccinated, they're going to shed a lot more virus than someone who's vaccinated. And so you can be in the room with them for a, a lower amount of time and still get a dose that's going to You know, blast through your immunity. Our vaccines weren't intended to and can't really keep us from getting the virus. What they can keep us from doing is getting a lot of the virus because the way viruses work, they get into a cell, they hijack the Xerox machine, and they start making tons and tons of copies of themselves. As those copies, as that cell bursts and those copies go out into the bloodstream, if you got a bunch of antibody hanging around it's going to grab most of the copies and not let them infect other sl- uh, other cells but some will get through and so you can get you get you don't get the geometric progression that you get in a naive person who hasn't been vaccinated but you can still get sick and you can still get sick in your nose and that's you know the port of entry so to speak if it doesn't get deep into your lungs and that's you know that's what we want It was going to get deep into the lungs that it really messed people up and caused so many fatalities and lethalities. Also, if it gets deep into the heart, another problem. But that's primarily myocarditis related to an impairment of the anti-inflammatory characteristics. So if you take out a lot of that ACE2, you're not going to be able to fight the inflammation of the heart. So other things, I've talked about diet and green tea extract and curcumin. And, and just for prevention, this time of year, it's probably good to go up on your zinc. So a good multivitamin with at least 30 milligrams of zinc, 5,000 units of vitamin D. You can, if you're not in your fertile period, in other words, you're not going to get pregnant, you can take up to 25,000 units of vitamin A, which can be very helpful. All of these things modulate the cellular defense against uh, viruses. And so a little bit of everything is really good. There may be some benefit from N-acetylcysteine. I find that difficult to tolerate gastrointestinal. I don't recommend NAC for everybody. Uh, but I do recommend quercetin Kercetin is uh, from apple skin, you know, apple a day and all of that. But it modulates the inflammasome. So it actually puts the brakes on the process of inflammation, similar to the way that the ACE2 en- enzyme does, but the ACE2 is down for the count. And when we look at chronic long COVID, if it isn't cardiac damage and it isn't pulmonary infarctions, pul- you know, from the blood clots that form during a bad case of COVID, it's mostly persistent Inflammation, and because quercetin stabilizes the mast cells, it alleviates the uh, some of the inflammatory, the uh, alert, allergic type uh, reactions that people get because COVID destabilizes the mast cells, and some people will get a lot of allergic type skin reactions. And again, how much? How much of that? Probably about a gram. Uh, twice a day unless you're taking phytosome and then it's 500 uh, twice a day. Just take it to get through the winter. Don't stay on that dose for more than three months. And then the uh, ECGC, which is green tea extract. You'll want about four cups of green tea daily, if you like green tea, or 225 milligrams of the compound. Now, all of those doses I gave you, every single bit of that information is actually science-based and there is a yard-long list of references that if anybody wants them, I can send them to you. But I'm pretty persuaded that these are great strategies and I do my best to consume uh, appropriate doses of these throughout uh, the cold and flu season and basically for the last three years because I am a doctor. I get exposed and... I really, really don't want to get bad COVID. So I had planned to talk about natural killer cells, but I don't think we really have enough uh, time for that. So I'm going to just pivot over to uh, these multicellular bots uh, that scientists have figured out how uh, how to make. They're basically spontaneously forming fibroblasts. The fibroblasts are the cells that sit quiet, kind of, you know, hibernating. And then when you cut yourself, they wake up and they go to the side of the injury and they start forming a cellular bridge. The fibroblasts initially just start dividing and making flesh. And it's not really perfectly organized flesh. It's a gooey patch But over time, once it's got the wound patched, then it starts to reorganize and become actual skin cells and start making your squamous epithelium. And lo and behold, that's the process of healing naturally. But researchers at Tufts University and Harvard's uh, Weiss Institute have been playing around with what they call anthrobots from human tracheal cells. And these are, uh, these are little, they, they originally were working with frog embryo cells, and these were called xenobots. And essentially, you take some stem cells and you grow them up and you throw some growth factors at them, and they spontaneously form these little balls called organo- organoids. And these organoids have become a very big deal in science because they're not just a single cell, they actually have multiple tissue types in them and they function a lot like the actual organs. So we have brain organoids and heart organoids and liver organoids and we can use these for testing therapies and drug development and understanding more about how the cells interact with each other. So these organoids, the first ones that were done with frog embryos, this was a couple of years ago, maybe uh, four or five years ago, actually I think it's pre-COVID, and I had talked about how the these frog embryo cells that were like biological robots, they could navigate mazes, they could collect information, they had a very primitive memory, and they could heal themselves, and they could divide at least a few times on their own. Uh, but because they were derived from an amphibian, we thought this could only be done with amphibians because, of course, they can regrow uh you know, they can regrow their limbs. But uh, bots can be created from adult human cells. You don't even need to use embryo cells. And uh, I guess they're probably throwing some chemical signals in there. But it allows us to understand embryology. It allows us to understand uh, a lot of things. And in this case, they used human trachea cells, which turned out they totally hit the jackpot. Uh, so they wanted to see whether well, they could reprogram the interactions between the cells. And uh, not only could they teach the trachea cells to create new molecular shapes, but it, they could teach them to interact with neurons, and that's where we're really starting to get exciting because these little round organoids can move, they can migrate, and the trachea cells have cilia, okay? So these cells come from the inside of the trachea, and they're covered with hair-like projections caused, called cilia, and they wave back and forth. And their purpose is to help trachea cells push dust and dirt out of your air passages. It's called the mucociliary ladder, and it's how we clean our lungs. And they took the these cells that were ciliated cells and all beat in coordination And when they grew them in uh, a nutrient solution, they spontaneously formed tiny little multicellular spheres, these organoids that I was talking about. And they played around with the growth conditions until they got the spheres to turn them to grow with the cilia on the outside. And as soon as they got those growing, the cilia started moving these organoids around. They started literally swimming in the nutrient for, uh, Nutrient fluid. Now, I don't think they're swarming yet, so we don't have to worry about real nanobot danger, but they could be, resp- they can be designed to respond to an environment. So they found that they would typically get several different sizes, big range of difference from 30 to 500 micrometers. So that's a uh, human hair to the tip of a sharpened pencil. And so these are bigger than nanotech. And when they're spherical and fully covered with cereal, cilia, excuse me, uh, they travel in straight lines and they uh, tend to wiggle. And so what they did, they're playing around. You know, these, these are, they're like, oh, wow, what happens when we do this? But uh, by using these adult cells, they created a lab test and they showed that these things will spontaneously migrate to a wound, now the wound that they chose to make was a two-dimensional layer of human neurons. Scratching that, and creating a, creating a wound, and then this attracted these anthrobots. They're causing these two, these organoids, and the big ones went straight for the wound, and they actually formed a bridge. And but once they hit the wound, they released compounds that triggered cellular regrowth. So the neurons responded to these organoids by building a bridge of neurons uh, just as, just healing the nerve injury. So obviously my mind jumps to spinal cord injuries, uh, retinal injuries, maybe even drug delivery to targeted tissues. Laying down these pro-regenerative drugs just all of the diabetic wounds that we see and trying to get those stimulated. Uh, Also, these organoids potentially could be used using CRISPR or other technology. We could cause them to make and secrete molecules, maybe replacing, ultimately replacing organs, uh, repairing the pancreas, repairing, uh, (laughs) maybe restoring fertility after chemotherapy. I mean, The possibilities here are endless. And the fact that the thing that really blows my mind is the fact that these compounds self-generate. While we're on the subject of really cool things that self-generate, let's talk about the human brain. Now, I've talked about neuroplasticity and mentioned that 25 is about the age when most people's brains... Settle down. Those of you who are over 25 probably have some experience with how you kind of go through a, a status or a phase change in your mid to late 20s, and your concentration and your ability to anticipate adverse consequences and possibly avoid them improves compared to what, they, what it was 10 years earlier at 16, and we have all sorts of brain data showing us this. But let's, let's tile back all the way to postnatal brain development. So we're talking about a baby. And we know that the infant's brain, the neonatal brain, is very primitive compared to that 25-year-old brain. And one of the ways that it's primitive is that it literally doesn't have as many pages in the book. It doesn't have as many layers on the cortex. If you look at the brain of an infant, particularly a newborn, it's very smooth. It hasn't formed all of those lovely little whorls and grooves, which actually happen because of differential migration of neurons. Let's take a moment to think about the human brain at birth. The environment to the infant is a noisy kaleidoscope. It's a classic case of TMI unbelievable sensory overload. Nothing makes sense. One is flooded with color and sound and skin sensations that have never been encountered before. The brain is able to receive everything initially. It's preloaded with all sorts of receptive capacities that perhaps never get used in the environment and circumstances of that birth. Nothing is making sense. In order to begin making sense of the cacophony of it all, the developing brain starts paying attention to what repeats. It edits the input and begins to learn what to ignore. Areas that are used a lot puff up like the inflatable snowmen at Christmas. Neglected areas begin to shrink and become suppressed. Much of the mechanism of this neuroplasticity apparently is associated with migrating cells that suppress certain areas and leave others alone. This is super important on the fundamental processes that lead to learning, memory, spatial navigation, uh, the, the ability. We talked last week about speech and how it's first the infant hears the rhythm of the speech, not the sounds uh, of the speech, but the rhythms and how baby talk may in fact help uh, infants focus to know that this is information being sent to them because of the way we modulate our baby talk. So this is a kind of a follow-up looking at a specific subset of neurons within the interrhinal cortex. So let's start with this idea of an inhibitory neuron. As our brains develop, we get better and better at turning down the volume on neurologic activity. When we get that first brain uh, right out of the chute, so to speak, it's, everything's cranked up. The bass, the treble, everything is crack, uh, cranked up, and it's just a, con- a cacophony of information. And so the process of building a brain is actually learning to edit and prune the information, decide what to pay attention to and what to ignore. And that particular function is echoed by changes in the structure. So there's a little subset of inhibitory neurons that are in the intorhinal cortex. This is an area of the brain that's essential for forming memories. It's in the midbrain. And these. this is also where the smell sensors go. So if you want to think about evolution, smells the first sense. And so the brain grows essentially out of the structures that form uh, and receive olfactory information. These cells migrate throughout the brain. And so because they keep migrating and they keep basically turning down the volume on what's coming through, they restructure the brain in a favorable way. Now, the entorhinal cortex is super important because when we, if we have someone with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease, we can screen for that with a sense test. If they lose, if they lose their sense of smell uh, as they age, then there are many things that cause you to do that. But it does happen about eight years before we can, in any one of our other technologies, diagnose Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. So it gives us a little heads up. If there's a family history, we might want to initiate therapy on a just-in-case basis. But the human brain makes billions of new neurons, uh, and neurons continue to be formed throughout our lives, but particularly through toddlerhood. Think about how complicated it is to learn to walk. It makes sense. But more importantly, if our brains are always changing and we can continue to exploit that neuroplasticity, we may be able, using that, to find a cure for dementia. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDon.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at ask dr dawn for now this is dr dawn saying so long and stay healthy ask dr dawn is brought to you by jiva media production and editing by charles bansky music by john scoville